0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Sit back, relax, it's over to Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with Mark, episode 283, Vet Gurus Podcast. Thursday twenty-third of the February the second, two thousand and twenty-three. Mark, are you there? Mark, are you there? I am. I'm here
0: and enjoying <laughs> life, Brendan.
1: Yes. We were having a bit of a chat about life and um how it just flies by, doesn't it? Um the older you get, the quicker things go. It's probably because we're getting a bit slower as well, I think, Mark. Um to be to be fair, but um The old, you know, make hay while the sun shines, um, enjoy every moment um, becomes more and more precious, doesn't it? You know,
0: the other thing I've noticed about getting older, and I have lots of experience in this area, (laughs) having been getting older for some time now, um, there's two things. The first one is that um, that it does feel weird. um, Like, I, I don't mind telling people that I'm now 60 years old, six decades, and um, and it does feel old having a number of years under your belt that is the same as old people.
1: Yes, <laughs> um, I think as, as as each you know year or decade especially passes, you think, oh gee, that that you know that decade is is old. Somebody who's forty years old, somebody who's 30 is thirty years old, and then you hit twenty, and then you hit thirty, then you hit forty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then you hit fifty, um, then you hit sixty, seventy, eighty. You think, oh no, I don't feel that old. Um,
0: but in most ways, the sad thing is I when don't you feel meet... that old. No, <laughs> which, is good. Old, which is good, except in one regard, and that is recovery from injuries. Things that, like, I tweaked my knee the other day, and bloody, and you know how I did it. I was kneeling down to have a look at uh, a uh, a frog to take a photograph, and I was stuck. My knee clicked out. Um, I thought I'd ripped um, a ligament or something and I couldn't walk for like several days. I'm all good now, but crikey, it takes so much longer to heal, you know, to recover from relatively minor injuries. Things that would barely keep you out of action for a day when you're in your 20s. Yes. Now you've got to set yourself up for a week of relaxing, leg up, inactivity, rest, <laughs> ice, <laughs> compression, elevation, all the injury
1: Old, anyway. man, old man, old, old I man. I am feeling complaints. it sometimes, man. Yes. Well apart from you, Mark, when I when I <laughs> meet my colleagues, um, it's it's especially any that I've went through university with or around my time, it's always that shock, isn't it? You meet them, you catch up with them for a dinner or coffee or, or whatever, and you think, jeepers, they save age, they're looking <laughs> so bloody old." <hard." laughs> And, and you just don't, and they're obviously thinking the same thing, aren't they? Random's <laughs> <laughs> let himself go, hasn't he? God, has he been on the drink or something? Yes. Uh,
0: yes. Is, is it, I've, I've read somewhere that our image of ourself, despite what we see in the mirror, remains like, you know, uh, uh, something that we saw in the mirror when we are in our 30s or something. Um, like it doesn't age with us after a certain point. Um, and I certainly Hey, have a look in the mirror every once in a while. And go, who's that bastard? Yes, well, enough
1: ageism talk, Mark. Um, <laughs> we, um, oh, you just wanted to briefly t- chat about um, the friends you have with you at the moment, um, in your um, outdoor studio you have at the minute. Do you want to chat talk about that?
0: Oh, it's um, I do, I am in an outdoor studio and um. Um, sitting outside the uh, decommissioned Bamaga Swimming Centre and um, and and I'm on what essentially, uh, you know, I've got my connection to Telstra and I'm on what is essentially a um, an outdoor paddock and there is a literal pack of dogs. So um, one of the funny things about this community is that it's completely acceptable um, to just let your dog roam. And so um, there is a pack of half a dozen dogs and they're all wagging their tail. They're mixed, they call them here uh, mixed hunting breeds. Um, And so they, you know, they're brindley, wolfhound cross, Great Dane cross, um, but crikey's Brendan, it's fascinating to just watch their behavior as a group. And as they wander along here, um, they the, another dog just wanders in and just the angles, the body language, the, the tail wagging, the sniffing. Um, it uh, it reminds me of a lot of my small animal behavior, but just like the practical reality of it just is right there in front of me.
1: Ah, uh, do you know who does all the vet work for those? Do, is there a program up there to, to um, you know, catch and deworm and desex those? Or the, are they owned ones, as you sort of hinted with some of them?
0: No, they are owned. Um, by and large, they're owned. Um, there is a, a, the land council up here uh, does have a program. They pay a veterinary business to fly in um, uh, uh, sky dog vets, and they do a marvelous, marvelous job up here. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, yeah, I, I, the de- whole de-sexing thing, the thing about Bamaga, um, is that it's unlike a lot of other remote communities in that it is an amalgamation of, um, of, uh, several indigenous communities. Some, uh, Indigenous people were brought here as workers. Some Indigenous people have come here from the islands. And so there's a real um, uh, uh, mix to the community. Yeah. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're um, unlike other remote communities. Um, they, they, uh, um, they're, they're, there probably is a lot more health care that does go on with the animals. Um, so all these dogs look like pretty healthy, um, so, so yeah, a little bit different, but a little bit the same.
1: A little bit different, but a little bit the same. Well, that's something that applies to lots of things, Mark, apart <laughs> from our age. In, I think we should jump into some news stories before we get into our philosophical discussion this week as our main topic, Mark. Um, a couple of bird top, bird ones, Mark, I've put up. You'll be, you'll be pleased. And even the one I'm doing is a bird one as well. So the one that I have is... And I think this one makes logical sense, doesn't it? And I'm sure you're well and truly up with this one. Birds that dive may be at greater risk of extinction, Mark. And um, obviously, many water birds have evolved very specialised bodies and behaviours to help with diving. And um, this is a Science News article that we will link to. So there's substantial morphological adaptation for diving. Which includes things such as neck muscles and bones in the chest, etc. And you, you certainly could imagine the forces, Mark. Um, you've probably read some papers that talk about the forces of um, when birds are hitting the hitting the um, water, Mark. Um, to
0: indeed, to, the gannets. We love watching the gannets and boobies dive into um, the water.
1: God, it must be the G's, Mark. And and also, so yeah, they've, um, evolutionary biologists, Mark, they investigated a collection of 727 water birds. across 11 groups um and looked at um ones that were wing propelled pursuits like penguins and orcs and plunge divers etc um, and basically they you know they they sum- summarized that they explored the link between diving and development of new species or demise mark and the bottom line is that um you know extinction rate was more common in wing propelled and foot propelled pursuit divers compared with plunge divers And I think the takeaway sentence from or paragraph from this article is the more specialized you become, the more reliant you are on a particular diet, origin strategy or environment. And basically they haven't had any birds that have, Become this specialized for this sort of dive in, Mark. Um, that revert back the other way, you know, and that's the concern with them is that they're trapped in their own evolutionary adaptation, Mark. So it doesn't bode well for their long-term survival. These guys. Um, what's your thoughts on this? You know, what do we need to do? Um, fix the world, don't we? Um, <laughs> which is impossible.
0: Um, but it is like, fascinating, like, though, isn't it that um, that there are species who are generalists and have general abilities, and, and we, we've we seen this in Australia here because we have uh, pelicans who are, you know, overseas, the overseas species of pelicans are um, plunge divers, and our birds have all the adaptations, the subcutaneous air lay, the emphysema, and uh the strength of their neck but our birds don't plunge dive Um, just pointing out that those birds can use those adaptations in different ways but the more specialized ones like penguins and loons and whatnot they're they've almost painted themselves into an evolutionary dead end and as long as their environment persists that's okay because they're uniquely adapted to it uh, but as we change those environments, as we fish them, as we yep. create alterations through climate change, uh, many of these birds have nowhere to go because they're stuck in the dead end. So so yeah, I think it's just another reason for us to be aware that we hold the key to the survival of many of these species and and we need to take that responsibility seriously and and manage the way we... Use their the, their food stocks, their their habitat, um, and more generally, um, take some real uh, affirmative action on climate change. Well
1: said, Mark. Well said. Now you have another bird news item for us.
0: My ones are, uh, um, well, probably smaller in terms of um, you know the worldwide <laughs> effect on survival. <laughs> I love this I, one, though. <laughs> but it is it does have sort of like a I don't know. A, a, um, so many things about it make me smile. I know that's perverse. Um so that it's a, a, um an article that talks about a bird smuggler. Um and the first the first thing that makes me smile is the um the time that must have been spent to come up with the clickbait headline that um kingpin bird smuggler turns jailbird. Um and um and the story essentially is the the uh the story of the capture of a, a man who smuggled finches from Guyana into New York for bird song competitions um and he's been sentenced he's been he's a repeat offender and um this is the second time he's been sentenced in a brooklyn court um he has vowed uh that it would be his last and i believe him um he was sentenced to one day, well, one year and a day in prison. I, I would be interested how the um, how the judge came up with that particular number. Um, he's sixty two, and um, and he's just passionately involved in in um, in Latin America. There apparently is a, a you know a big uh, subculture of uh, competing songbirds, um, and so uh, yeah. Um, people get very passionate about this and uh, some of the birds fetch thousands and thousands of dollars Um, and with a significant Latin American community in the US uh, there is the opportunity to move these birds into that country for money. Um, But um, I don't know Brendan, one of the reasons, I was saying to you before um, that one of the reasons uh, this brought a smile to my face was that um it gets in the news, but I don't know how much I don't know how much difference like I think all these songbirds are captively um at least the 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 um the good singers. The good singers are captively bred. Um and it and they shouldn't be transferred across uh international lines and that main thing is not the survival of the birds. In the wild, it's the cruelty that's inflicted on them. You know, these birds were wrapped up and put into hair curlers, weren't they? Yes. And, and uh,
1: I think the fact he was bald was a bit of a giveaway yeah. um, when they found all these hair curlers in his luggage. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, and he used
0: uh, the same technique twice. Yeah, he
1: did. <laughs> he's he not, did. he's not inventive. And um, he, he actually stra. And I've just I've just. Sent you a little pic of the uh, actual his uh, the hair. Oh, there's one set of them that was strapped around his ankles, Mark. Um, that's that's how he did them, like a, like a chain around his ankles. Um, um, yeah, so he's got cankles, um,
0: and that's how they discovered him
1: um, with these. Yeah,
0: um, look, I, I I um I hope, like I said, I hope he uh, his uh, avowed testimony in. Um, in the court that he's moving away from birds and and going to get into something else
1: completely and utterly above board and legal. He might become a hairdresser now. Yes, I'm going to stay away from the birds, he pledged in a video he submitted to the court, because it's trouble, Um, he said, Mark. So there you go. Yeah, like you said, it was the second time he's been caught. So there we go, kingpin bird smuggler turns jailbird, (laughs) yes. (laughs) It's got all the clickbait you'd love there, Mark. Well, let's jump into our main topic, and it's one that you suggested, Mark, and it's a bit of a a discussion about, well, our particular niche um, of veterinary practice, Mark.
0: I do swing between highly technical and focused topics, and real waffly philosophic topic. And, <laughs> and and this time I've gone for the philosophy.
1: So, what have you put down there? You've, oh, gee, you've got very fancy here. Five top paradoxes of unusual and avian veterinary practice. And number one, and yeah, well, I must admit I agree with all of these, Mark, but I think it's worthwhile putting them out there every now and again um, to, to highlight them. Cost is not proportional. To the size of the animal, and um, gee, how it's certainly a truism, isn't it, Mark? Um, you know, I, I, I'm amazed at how many people will spend an inordinate amount of money. Sometimes that you're trying to convince them not to spend, if it with a hopeless case of of some of these tiny animals. Um, obviously, the birds that you may be seeing, Mark, that yep, are yep. T- tiny, but also you know, little ratties, especially. Um, I find rat owners. Um, are often extremely attached to their rats and we'll, we'll, um, they'll treat them like their family member, their child, and, and be more than willing to spend lots of money on it. And, yes, I I, I think that, you know, the, the point with this one that you've made there, Mark, is that people who don't have an affinity for animals or, or pets, um, if you mention something like this, that I saw a rat and the people went and paid for a CT scan or whatever, um, um, they're gobsmacked, aren't they? And um, they say, what, just for a rat? You know, um, and the same could be said if it's, oh, just a budgie or just a, just a fish. Um, so yes, cost is not proportional to the size of an animal. And, and I think we all make the mistake of second guessing a lot of the time, don't we, um, with our clients and their pets um, in regard to, to the money situation. And there's always that trap of, of, of you think, gee, I want to do this particular procedure or this test on, on the patient in front of me. And um, you may not mention it because you're worried that the client will say no, that they, that they, that they don't want to spend the money or that they think the money is not well spent um, or that it's an exorbitant fee or whatever um, for, for that workup. So I'm always constantly saying to myself, no, you need to always offer the best possible um solution or or work up for that patient in front of them and if they say no they say no that's their decision
0: and two things to say about that you're exactly right brendan and we need to record that in our medical record yes Um, it's absolutely critical that you you, as you say you offer everything the gold standard and it's up to people then to make that decision Um, give them a realistic expectation of the outcomes. Um, and record that you've done that um, in in your medical record. Um, it's fascinating to me how this has changed over uh, the course of my veterinary career. That um, you know that it was, it was also you know, the little mouse or rat was uh, uh, when I first graduated was always assumed to you know be going to cost a lot less than a dog or cat. Just on the yep. basis of size, but um, the the uh, pet owning public has become much more sophisticated and generally expects that uh, that um, they expects and understands that they're paying for expertise um, and that's not you know not related to the size of the animal and often. Um, if there is any relationship. It's inverse. There needs to be more expertise for the more unusual ones. So it's sort of been a good natural progression in our profession, but it always uh, strikes me as a paradox when I do hear that people are expecting, oh, it's a little animal, uh, therefore it'll be a little price. Yes,
1: and as always, we'd be interested in our listeners' thoughts on this and any, any case examples they've had with it and betgurus at gmail.com, the place to send the email, Mark. Number two.
0: Number two is that, uh, because I'm often caught saying this to recent graduates, Brendan, and I'll often say, oh, look, uh, don't be afraid of getting into unusual avian-type work, working with reptiles, working with birds, uh, because are those principles that you learned in university for small animal, large animal medicine, those same general principles apply. You've just got to apply them to these new species. Um, So all of the graduates that leave Australian universities uh, definitely are qualified to use those general principles. But the paradox is that you do need to be aware of the peculiarities of the individual species that you're dealing with. Um, You can't Use uh, the standard antibiotics in our small mammal herbivores, you're going to cause problems. Um, you can't use certain drugs with ferrets, and you have to be aware of the size of the animal. Um, you can't use generic doses. So, there are the paradoxes that the same general principles apply, and everyone can do it, but you have to be aware of the unique individual peculiarities of your species. Yes,
1: well put. I mean, when I'm occasionally teaching, um, I stress two things and I, I usually break it up into the two aspects, Mark, um, that you sort of hinted at there. I say, what is the same and what is different when we're doing with, dealing with this particular species? So what is the same? We still have our same you know, scientific approach, our our, our systems and, and organs and, and what type of disease process is going on. That's still going to be the same. We're still going to get infectious processes, neoplasia, you know, metabolic disease, whatever, um, in that particular species. And we have systems and organs involved with that species. So what is the same? And use the same approach you do um, to any other, you know domesticated or, or, or other species that you're seeing, and then what is different. And that's a tricky bit, you know, and I, and I think it's important to separate the two, you know, um, and, and it makes it easier. In, m- in my 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 mind, it certainly does, the, the approach to the cases. Um, and when you're looking at what is different, and it may be everything from your jug- drug doses to the fact that it's a bird that has this air sac system to, to a reptile that um, needs to be kept at its preferred body temperature. So good point, Mark. Number two.
0: Number three. Number three leads on from number two in that there's a, for me, there is a particular observation that I've made about rabbit owners. Um, And that is that uh, rabbits are um, relatively, you know, small, simple stomached herbivores. And that, that rabbit owners have a characteristic that they share with Um, horse owners in that they're, um, they're, well, I can say this because I've owned a rabbit, they're a little bit weird, Brendan. They're (laughs) unique and they're really passionate and these characteristics are are shared with horse owners. Um, But I have got to say that while there is a, um, you know, a a parallel uh, between these uh, simple stomached herbivores and the people that end up loving them and owning them, um, they are completely different. And the diseases we see between them, um, you know, you can't simply, you might be able to simply jump between horse work and rabbit work because you're able to deal with the owners, uh, but the medicine is completely different. Um, and uh, and you need to be aware of those differences. That's why it leads on from number two.
1: We're all a bit weird, Mark. Some of us are just a bit more weird than others i think is the, is the takeaway from that and yes there are i suppose some stereotypics with um certain species and owners aren't there um you know the association with some of these rabbit owners being quite intense um but absolutely devoted to their rabbits and that's fantastic um Rat owners, the association with, you know, Gothic people um, and this goth scene with, with some rat owners, um, ferret owners and um, <laughs> some <laughs> particular... Uh, look, I'm going to be a little bit careful about some well, of these pieces. Well, I, I um,
0: often... The the um, reptile owners, it's been... Yes. Um, I've been introduced to a new whole cohort of um, motorbike riding um, <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes, yes.
1: Um I know and and when when I tell a few of my stories about some of, some of the reptile owners that have um experienced in, in the past is, you know, if if that particular person didn't want to pay their bill, then that that's fine because <laughs> I I I treasure my kneecaps mark Uh, and i want to keep them so yes but you get the complete opposite you know i've had reptile owners who are you you would never pick them and they're but ceo of a you know international company and and they they arrive with their you know brand new mercedes and um oh we all love our
0: immaculately dressed etc yeah we love our archetype pet owners, but as you said in the in the beginning, you can't um, don't uh, don't pre-judge. prejudge, don't prejudge. My fourth uh, top paradox is the whole pharmacy thing, Brendan. Um, that when you start to get into unusual avian and reptile sort of work as a veterinarian, um, you uh, often have you're using very very small doses of medications because these species obviously, uh, by and large, are, um, are relatively uh, proportionately smaller animals. Um, but the costs of running that pharmacy um, can be comparable to a small animal pharmacy or even more because you've got to have, uh, firstly, a uh, an array of as well as your usual drugs, and you, there are a significant number of drugs that uh, work in both styles of practice, uh, but you have got to have uh, some very specific drugs for your, um, your unusual work, and you often have to have them in preparations that are a little bit unusual or um, hard to get or cost a little bit more. So while the physical space your unusual and avian pet pharmacy might take up is smaller, the costs might actually be bigger to run that pharmacy, Brendan.
1: Well said. Well said. Um, and uh, and and you know the, the actual, often the actual cost of the individual drugs um, per mil or whatever is 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 the same. And by the time you mess around with you know dispensing micro quantities, you're also adding you know the same drug label that costs you whatever one or two dollars to to print um, and the time of the um, staff to, to put it in the pill bottle and the cost of the pill bottle, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are flavouring it as well, then it can end up being you know more expensive, even though you may think from afar that you're yeah, only, only using a smaller quantities, so it should be cheaper um, for everybody, including the client.
0: And it relates to number one in that people... People have a simple, um, what's the right word, uh, oh, the drug costs this much. I've had this happen where people go, oh, uh, you know, I can buy that from an online chemist for a fraction of what you're selling it to me for, um, but I'm not selling you this drug. I am giving you an entire service and expertise around it, and that's what I'm asking you to pay for. Some people go, yeah, I'm not paying for that. Um and that's fine. Um, other people are more than happy to have their eyes open to the way that um, that we have to spend a lot of time learning about these things. Um, but it uh, it's a bit of a paradox to me, Brendan.
1: Good point, Mark. As usual, know, number five of our top five of your top five and mine, <laughs> I suppose, too. Five top paradoxes of our unusual in veterinary practice.
0: Well, this relates to the you know the record keeping. Uh, topic that we canvassed a little bit before. Um, my experience is that with unusual pairs, clients will often have a little bit of a, oh, I've spoken to two or three vets, no one really knows what's going on. Uh, they they almost come to you with a bit of a preconceived, uh, you know, no one knows what's happening, let's just have a crack type, type, type attitude um, that will, you know, you're saying it's this, Another vet said it might be something else. Let's just do something and see what happens. Um, And I think this is a situation to be very careful about uh, because the paradox is that uh, these clients that have a let's just have a crack uh, attitude to the case are often the same clients who, in retrospect, down the track, have near specialist uh, level veterinary care expectations. And so any time that you do have a discussion with the client about a plan um, and the likelihood of success and um, their, their sort of concerns, this has to be written in the record because their, their level of care that they expect when they're speaking to you in the first instance might not necessarily be something they're happy with down the track.
1: Uh, interesting point so I suppose one point of way of putting it Mark is that you you say to them look we've got this very difficult surgery to do on this bird um, but we can have a try if you like um, and if it all goes horribly wrong um, then they blame you and say you know you're the specialist bird vet why didn't you save my bird is that what you're saying? yeah
0: yeah, that's um." Uh, in typical fashion, you've trimmed my waffle down to a <laughs> succinct little statement. But yeah, it's exactly right. You um, uh, and I suppose the corollary of that is don't while uh, while it can sometimes be difficult, don't be afraid of referring to a specialist. If you're a general uh, accession vet who's doing unusual and exotic and avian patients, um, and someone does express an interest, you know in the the uh, the high powered uh, chemotherapy option for your uh, neoplasia case. Um, don't be afraid of referring to specialists. There are an increasing number of those available, or, or, or another,
1: yeah, or another colleague who just has more experience with that. It might be yeah, somebody exactly. who, who does more orthopedic work than you, um, who, who's not far away. Um, another exotics vet with the same qualifications as you, or somebody else who is done fifty more bladder surgeries than you. So yes, it's it's you lose nothing, and, and more often than not, you gain you gain a a client long term by referring them on. You know, it's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it, Mark? I remember when paradoxical
0: one paradoxical.
1: Be, so. Oh yes, boom boom. <laughs> um, when I was first doing just smallies, um, dog and cat medicine and and then the emergency Mm -hmm. clinics opened, um, started opening. We only had one or two in our region of Melbourne, Mark, and then they sort of sprouted up from there. But initially when there was only one or two, my first boss, initially didn't want to refer any of the after-hour dog and cats to the emergency centre, fearing that they'd be lost to them. But it was the opposite. You know, you're offering them that 24-7 care that they weren't getting previously um, for their very unwell dog or cat. And typically, because they are getting that high-level care, it's more expensive and they come back to you and think, gee, you were quite... I'm um, <laughs> reasonable. Yes. Um so I don't think you lose clients and same story with the exotics, you know. If you're referring that that animal on to Mark for that bird surgery because he's the man. Um They'll usually come back um, because, obviously, Mark um, makes a botch of it, And, bird dies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and most of the time, most specialists—not um, me, me, referring specifically to be me—but um, most specialists or uh, general practitioners who are doing some of this referral work are keen to keep it going. So they're not interested in sort of stealing clients. They want to, you know, do the procedure and then go look, go back to whoever who referred you here. Um, we've had a collaboration. I've told them what we've done and they can follow up with this aftercare for whatever procedure we've done. Um, it is sort of collaborative and and um, and uh, because we work together, the better outcome turns out for the animal, but also for both practices involved. Yep. Don't be afraid of referring at all, Brendan.
1: Absolutely, Mark. Well, you've hammered out your five top paradoxes, Mark, and... Um... They're good ones, as usual. You've you've you're always always thinking, always thinking, as they say in the classics. Um, we'd be interested in any of our listeners' thoughts on these um, or any other
0: any hey, other or, paradoxes they can come up with. We'd be keen to hear. Yes, we would.
1: And with that, we're out of here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening.